In life, the most important thing is trust. Without it, everything is a lot harder in a quickly changing and turbulent time. Barclay Pierce Capital is a safe pair of hands, an organisation built on people. They understand you've worked hard to build your nest egg and their asset management business is tailored to suit your needs. Their services help grow your wealth in order to provide long-term safety and security for you and your family. BPC, just a phone call away. The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one-stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need this summer is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, the show where we explore the world of sport, music and business to deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class performers to create growth and optimise business. I'm Noel Olnett, the CEO of Securo, and today on the show I'm joined by musician Kieran Gribben. Kieran has written music and performed and worked with some of the world's leading musicians, including Madonna, In Excess, Paul Oakenfold and more. Kieran has paved his musical pathway through hard work and persistence. He now has a corporate team building program that he takes on to leading companies named Rock and Roll Team Building. Building Resilience Podcast. Kieran Griffin, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. Thanks for having me, Noel. It's great to get to have a good conversation with you this morning. Um, where I'd like to start is at the start. Talk to me from um, being a young lad in Belfast to becoming Grammy nominated. Oh man, <laughs> I, I started uh, gigging in Belfast when I was about 15. Um, and, you know, I was I was part of a an established band where I got a gig behind a keyboard and a guitar and I was sort of in the back corner, but the band were gigging in regularly three, four nights a week in some of the roughest areas of Belfast. You know, Belfast always was a divided town. Um, so one night you'd be gigging in a, in a you know, 100% Catholic Republican area. And then the next night you would go through the Peace Wall and uh, you'd go to the other side and you'd be playing to 100% Protestant or Loyalist area. So it was, a, it was, you know, I didn't know any different, but it was, looking back, it was, you know, uh, when you move away from it, it was a very divided society. And, but, you know, music, we, we were always sort of, uh, shielded from it a little bit. You know, a lot of these clubs were just grateful that musicians and bands were going into these clubs, so we got a bit of protection. You know, they knew they knew I was a Catholic going into these Protestant clubs, and they would, you know, the boss of the club would walk up to you and go, "Look, don't don't fear, uh, you'll you'll be fine. You're, we're protected here." But there was many times growing up as a young musician in Belfast where you know you feared for your life. It was pretty scary place. Um, but, you know, to go from there to a Grammy-nominated songwriter was like a 20-year journey. So it was, there was no sort of rule book in how to become a rock star. I wish there was, or I would have, I would have bought it. <laughs> <laughs> Read it a few times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I suppose it's the old saying, the 10,000 hours and the hard work and just sort of believing in one's own ability and learning. I think it was a bit of blind faith, mostly blind faith. How did you get into music? What was the tip of the iceberg for you as a young man? Um, I remember very distinct memories of being very, very young, falling in love with traditional Irish music, just hearing 
you know, walking into a session, as they call it in Ireland, where you have a bunch of traditional Irish musicians who are playing instrumental. You get fiddles and banjos and mandolins and tin whistles and virons and guitars and just this repetitive, uh, upbeat, hypnotic uh, pulse that was running within the traditional Irish folk music. And I remember very, very young, like, you know, four or five, six years of age, just being taken by it and those were the first sort of early memories and pretty, pretty early in my youth, like six, seven, I was writing little songs and tunes and making stuff up. But 11 years of age is when I bought my first guitar. And I was, you know, even before I bought the guitar, I knew I was going to be a musician. I just knew that it was my destiny to, to sort of do this. And, you know, you know, there wasn't a lot else. There was Gaelic football um, or, or there was music and, you know, and I, I did both. I was passionate about Gaelic football as well. Um, and, you know, the community uh, center where the Gaelic football club was, that's where I would have every Saturday and Sunday with my two best friends from I was 11, 12 years of age was there all day, Saturdays and Sundays, rehearsing, learning cover songs, Nirvana or REM or U2 or whatever we were learning. So it was, it was fun. I was literally just listening to uh, REM out of time yesterday in the car. I had one of those uh, one of those moments, you know, when you, everyone says you turn into your father at some point. And I was, I was, I was REM was on in the car, and I was using the uh, using the steering wheel as a drum. I'm like, fuck, yeah. I'm yeah. my dad. <laughs> you finally, you finally became your dad. I'm finally there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I see that in myself as well. Like. My father wasn't a musician, but he, he had a real passion for music as well. Like, and um, you know, I, I I remember distinctly, you know, driving home from like church or football matches. There was always music blaring in the car, and and he'd be singing at the top of his lungs. I've I've a real distinct memory of Bruce Springsteen's album "Born in the USA" being on repeat on tape in the car. So that that's kind of part of my DNA, and it was you know. But he was into a lot, a lot of like country stuff as well like uh, Willie Nelson and that type of stuff and you know Rhinestone Cowboy I remember him singing that at the top of his lungs uh, <laughs> and, and me with my hands over my ears feeling very embarrassed that this was my dad <laughs> <laughs> so your journey of creating a band and ending up going around the world touring with some of the the biggest bands at the time like Franz Ferdinand and the Sister Sisters what did that look like? What was that? What was that period of your your life like, from creation into 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 traveling around the world, doing what you loved? Yeah, there was a there was a kind of a period from when I was seventeen where I was taking it very seriously as a musician. I was learning my craft essentially. But when I turned twenty one, I went to a music college, and that was the first time I was surrounded by like minded people. You know, people that had dreams of doing stuff. And very soon, I, I formed a band. That band was called Leia. And we got we signed a deal, but all of us, it was like the four musketeers. We were all for one, one for all. And it was like complete focus, complete obsession with, you know, you were in your 20s, so you were young and, you know, aspiring and, and full of confidence and, you know, you know, bravado. And so I was I was just I just truly believed that this band uh, was destined for for superstardom. It, it didn't reach superstardom levels, but we all believed it for a good seven year period. And in that period, we 
we just started rubbing shoulders with the music industry and, and started learning, you know, started landing support slots with bands like you mentioned, Franz Ferdinand and Scissor Sisters and opening for these bands at festivals and, and while they were, you know, festival sites or, or uh, and you, you just got to meet them at, at the festivals. And then before you know it, you're touring with them and, you know, bands like Embrace, a lot of British bands, Snow yeah. Patrol. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a dream come true at that stage. You know, we weren't, we weren't making much money, but we were, we were living in each other's pockets, sleeping in hotels, one room hotel, you know, four of us in the one room, maybe five of us, because we had a sound man with us. Uh, and when we could afford a hotel room, sometimes we were sleeping in mates' couches. I've, I've slept in Newcastle, uh, <laughs> in a mate's house in Newcastle. Uh, we gigged there a few times in the university with a band called Cub, who had a, you know, had a few hits in the UK, never really broke through, but, you know, we were, you're talking 500 thousand seater venues we were playing with that band i remember being in newcastle it was a wonderful time you know you were not married no kids and it was just obsession with music and becoming um that star or that that musician that you've always dreamt of being and it was it was that sort of taste of drinking from the, the golden chalice as they say in the rock and roll game where you were sort of you know living the dream you, yep. you had dreamt it for so long and you were literally walking out onto these stages in front of, you know, thousands of people, you know, they were France. It was Franz Ferdinand's audience or it was Embrace's audience or Snow Patrol's audience, but we were there. Living and breathing it. Yeah. So at the end of, uh, uh, end of Leia, um, you then, um, obviously you, you'd consistently been writing music and, and being part of the scene. Um, you then started uh, more solo work with Joe Echo, I believe. Mm. What was uh, what was that like to go from being surrounded by mates and sleeping on floors and having that camaraderie to to more kind of uh, going solo and uh, I guess more vulnerable by yourself? Oh, look, there was there was there's the, there's the downsides where you don't have anyone around you. You you, you miss your mates and um, and you know that being on stage, being part of something that you're just you, you know you're part of something that's bigger than you, greater than the sum of all its parts, and then you go from that. The band, we, we did seven years of complete focus and determination um, and we were over it all. We were over each other and we were over <laughs> it all at, at the end of it. Um, we'd signed a deal and we'd we'd been nominated for like best new band at the Irish Media Awards and that kind of like was near the end. We'd just released the album, signed a record deal, but it just had come too late for us and we didn't taste that success that we wanted. And I, I came out of the band completely dejected with live work, live performance. Uh, all I wanted to do was become a songwriter at that stage. I sort of had a manager in London, uh, a guy called Bob Young, who's a songwriter himself. He wrote a lot of Status Quo's hits and toured with Status Quo for 25 years as their tour manager and still writes songs for Francis Rossi from Status Quo. And he's in his 70s now. Bob knew a lot of the music industry in London and I was still living in Belfast or, or yeah, I was living in Belfast at the time and I, I'd be gigging at the weekends to pay the bills and then Monday morning I'd fly to London, an hour flight, stay with Bob all week and just, I said to him, just get me writing songs. I just want to write songs with this one and that one. I, I don't want to be pigeonholed. So, and I also didn't want to call myself, I wanted to completely reinvent myself. So I called myself Joe Echo. I made a new name for myself and, and, and I suppose I just wanted to experiment 
with music in general and not be sort of pigeonholed. And I felt with Leia, we were an indie band. We had a very unique sound and we were sort of sitting in that sort of, you know, indie band world where it's across between, you know, many of these indie bands from Snow Patrol to Radiohead. And uh, with Joe Echo, I was adamant that I wanted to write a country song and not worry about being labeled that I'm writing a country song or write a jazz or a pop song. And and off we went, Bob and I, um, and we, 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 our success rate at that point, that's where I started to taste real success. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know why I think it's because I'd done the hard yards at that stage at a 10 solid years of focus of music at that stage. So it, and, and also it was the first time that I was into co-writing prior to that. I was very protective in Leia that this is me. These are my songs and they mean something to me, you know, but when I started going into London and writing with these other musicians, I realized I wasn't as good as what I thought I was. And, right. and I started learning a lot from going into the rooms with people that, you know, whether they were better musicians than me, it didn't matter. They were coming at it from a different angle. And the, the whole objective was writing songs. So they were coming at it from a completely different angle than where I was. And I just learned so much from that whole, that sort of three, four or five years in London writing all the time and it made me change my focus completely. It made me not uh, be as self-obsessed and worry whatever what everyone else thinks. I got to the stage pretty you know, over that period just going, fuck it, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna do what I do and not worry what anyone thinks of these songs. And, and, and that's, when, that's when things started to, to happen. And just on that, because I often hear from guests when they get that almost enlightenment moment, whether it's through a breakthrough that they've had to show resilience or there's some other kind of sliding doors moment where all of a sudden they go, I'm different who I was yesterday. Yeah. Well, did that affect you positively outside of the recording studios as well? Or was it more specific just, just to your music? No, it, 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 it definitely affected me. Um, I think, Recognition was was a massive uh, getting recognition for the work. I'd always believed from a very young age that I was good enough and that if I worked hard enough at this and focused and stayed true to the whatever this path is, just keep walking it, that the opportunities would arise. And you know, there was there's some success moments within Leia where you're standing on stage going, "How do we get here? This is wonderful." But you know, being in the in in those environments in London and rubbing rubbing shoulders with these successful songwriters and music producers it 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 gave me the confidence in myself that it made one i was getting recognition some of these songs were landing on movies or they were getting hits for other artists and um so the recognition certainly lifted my confidence um but then i realized after three four five years in this environment of working at that high level of of production and songwriters that i could mix it with the best of them um and i could always bring something to the table and it was it's never a, it was never a competitive environment either. It was like you'd be walking into a recording studio where the person you're working with, the objective was to come up together with something of quality. So it wasn't a, a case of I'm better than you or you're better than me. It's just that we're both different and we have the same objective here. And you're now in this world. You're now starting to get some some recognition. Um, what were the key traits or habits that you used to keep that momentum? Because momentum is a difficult thing 
to get, you have to go through different barriers, different obstacles. You have to be persistent. Mm -hmm. But keeping that, once you've got that momentum, the, the kind of world is at your feet. Um, mm. you're in the zone, I guess, so to speak. What was it that keeps you in that zone? What was it that kind of kept you on that path to, uh, to consistency? It was, it was weird. Um, I think definitely I realized as well that I needed people around me, um, and, and, and in every form of the industry, it was, you know, when I was, I was still started to gig again with Joe Echo and I started touring and it was about surrounding myself by great musicians at that stage. And I started uh, becoming friendly with quite, a, quite a few, uh, well-known London based and Irish based musicians that were working with me, but it was more the industry side of things where, you know, you know, th that momentum came because I was getting success one and then people, I, I felt like the phone was ringing rather than I was lifting the phone and yeah. sending emails, chasing people. people Isn't that the Nirvana me? that every business owner is looking for that day that your own phone rings? You're like, wow, uh, I've yeah. reached it's it. A, <laughs> it's a wonderful feeling. And we had this sweet spot, um, you know, pretty early in London, I, I, I tasted success. The, one of the first sessions I did was a guy, a writing session with Ian Green, who worked with Paul Oakenfold, the DJ. And yeah, nice. we started doing dance stuff and Oakenfold was remixing songs that I was doing and they were landing on his label Perfecto. So I started mixing in the, the dance world and I started work mixing in the movie world as, and then the publishing world, music publishing world. And she became friends with these, you know, became friends with like people like Jackie Perryman, who runs Paul McCartney's publishing house. And so these people would be phoning me up regularly. Jackie would phone me up at least once a month, twice a month going, here's an opportunity to pitch for this movie or here's an opportunity to pitch for this TV ad or this artist. Um, and, you know, that, that you, you, you don't really see it coming, but the, the, the hard work starts to come together at one point. And I had this real unbelievable sweet spot where over a period of maybe two, three years, everything I seemed to get involved in landed landed somewhere, whether it was a movie song for a movie or a movie, I started producing movie soundtracks and again, building a team around me. And so I became known as a guy that could sort of turn stuff around quickly. And, and like I say, that phone was ringing every day. And, you know, the work ethic was there. I was, I was always willing to step up you know, because I had that sort of mentality all growing up with the, through the barren years where nobody wanted to know who I was. Uh, so I just kept that work ethic. I would turn up every day and I would, I would, you know, it was an, a, a virgin on obsession, um, being a musician. It's, it's kind of like, it's not really a job. It's almost like a vocation. Um, there's, there's the obvious reward of being the musician, creating stuff and being on stage and getting that feedback with the audience. But, it's then it's this next level up when you start paying your bills purely by your own uh, creations and your own uh, collaborations. That was that was the big thing as well. I, I realized in that period that things happen better when I'm in the room with good people rather than relying on myself. And I, I, I every every bit of success as a songwriter I've had is you know I, the big ones. All of has been collaborating with other people. Um, and that, that was a, that was a uh, learning curve. Speaking of that collaboration, if we have a look at 2009, um, you become part of NXS, uh, obviously an Australian institution, a global institution as a, as a band. Um, 
talk me through what that was like. We just spoke off air about Arequipa and uh, that part of uh, that part of South America where you kind of made your debut in 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 excess. I'd love to hear hear more about that. Um, the the NXS thing came just being right place at the right time. Like a lot of the stuff with with my career, you know. It, again, at the NXS, that sweet period, it came as I was, you know, I'd just been Grammy nominated as a songwriter, I'd written a hit for Madonna, or co-written a hit with Madonna, and movie soundtrack with a YouTube-backed movie called Killing Bono. And this was all within one year, 18 <laughs> months. And then I, I went to Australia, and I was touring with a Scottish artist, Paolo Natini, yep. and, and I ended up at a party with Andrew Farris from NXS and we, we in, in Sydney when I was touring and, and the two of us just hit it off straight away. We just, I, I was a fan of the band and I, I was gushing in front of him going, man, you've no idea how much I love your band. And he was the main songwriter in the band. He co-wrote a lot of the songs, all the hits with Michael. And so we, we hung out for three, four days and became mates essentially. And, and, I listened to a lot of the songs that were unreleased that he did with NXS and I played him some of my stuff and and it was all it was music at the heart of what the relationship was about and the two of us just clicked um and you know long story short I got the phone call to come and audition for the band and and it it happened so quickly I moved when I got the gig I moved to Australia with my wife and newborn my boy was James was 2 months old and and I, 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 it was like, again, one of those golden moments in your life where you're going, what is going on? And you can't, you, you just have to hold on and be a part of the ride and, and not really try and it. control. Yeah. 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 And try and keep your, try and keep your, your uh, sanity together and not get overwhelmed. It was quite an overwhelming time because, you know, newborn, first baby, moving to Australia. And then three months later, I'm in Arequipa, as you say, in Peru standing on stage looking beside me going there's Kirk Pengilly that's Tim Farris and John Farris is in drums and there's Andrew Farris and shit I'm singing with NXS it was like it's one of those moments where you go is this I'm pinching myself on stage going when someone is someone gonna wake me up yeah. or have I have I taken some LSD and I'm yeah. tripping or what's going on? <laughs> uh, well, especially if you're in that kind of uh, almost the outback of Peru in Arequipa around all the uh, the condors, etc. You were you, you you might you might well have thought you were, were tripping off some LSD and it was a it was a reality check. It just landed from uh, landed from some uh, somewhere off uh, off this planet into this one. Yeah, look, it was it was a wonderful thing. I I dreamt. I used to sit in my, my mother's living room watching a VHS copy of um, of An Excess Live at Wembley, uh, Live Baby Live or Live Baby Live, whatever they call it. And and you know that was the band at the height of their powers, the height of their success. And you know, and so to be standing there, you know, it was probably twenty years after Michael's death at this stage when I got the gig, and um, you know. Just to be, just to be on that stage and and be in South America and you know and and tour buses and first class flights and and fancy hotels and you live in the dream of being a rock star where you you know from a very very young age like I say eleven years of age I bought the electric guitar and that was it I I was telling everyone I'm going to be a rock star that's it that's what I'm doing. And, you know, most people, including my family, thought I was mental. Um, and and here I was after all of these years sort of living, literally living the dream. And, yeah, it was, 
it's something that you know I look back on now with great uh great just positive vibes and it's changed my life forever it's a wonderful thing to say that you stood on stage with in excess as their singer wow wow um Fast forward to today, obviously you've taken all of that, those years of experience, the hard grind, the kind of the thrive for the perfectionism around music and also then all of the collaboration. And you've created an organization called the Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll Team Building. Mm. I'd love to know more about that and I guess what the, what the purpose of the organization is and I guess the outcomes that organizations have when they, when they work with your business. Um, rock and roll team building was born after in excess finished touring. I was asked to speak at a corporate event and I, I, I said to them, absolutely no problem. I'll have a chat, but I want to bring the guitar. And very soon at these, I started speaking at these events. I realized that there was a lot of dry content, lots of speakers with messages, but as an entertainer, I was like going, this something, we need something else here. Um, so the, the entertainer and me, uh, basically wanted interactivity from the audience. And very soon I was pulling people up on stage just to do stuff uh, with music. Um, so Rock and Roll Team Building was born about seven, eight years ago. And we now have uh, teams in particular, we, we have a business structure set up in Australia, uh, but we also have a business structure in America. And we've we probably got to 25 professional, high-end professional musicians, songwriters that we work with regularly. Um, and the whole objective is to go into go in with teams in the corporate space, and it's it's non-competitive. It, music is non-competitive, so it's about creating environments where people can step into that space and you know improvise with music, uh, create with music, performance, um, and and be on stage and feel what it's like uh, with a drum kit and electric guitar, loud and going for it, um, and. I think, look, it, it's it's grown into something now that um, it's sort of taken a life of its own. There, there's a genuine need for uh, team building now, and we're we're seeing that now more than ever. Our business, this is the busiest time our business has ever been. We're coming out of COVID, where corporations are trying to get their teams back together again, and this is we've created a, a you know it's a like I say non-competitive, so it's all inclusive, it's interactive, it's fun, it's entertaining. Um, and it, there's some amazing times on stage with rock and roll team building where, you know, particularly in the improvisation where we're writing a song where I maybe have a live band jamming quite low on a, on a piece of music. And I could take you up, Noel, beside me and, and I'll, we have written four, you know, four lines that rhyme. We've got the comp, we've got the, the lyric content from the audience. And, and I'm saying to you, Noel, this is your chance. Stand up and go for the sing what you see here. Sing it and hear the band and be part of it and that those type of environments are are wonderful for me because you never know how it's going to go and we've had so many beautiful times where you, you know if someone on stage just literally letting themselves go and and owning that moment and you see the reaction with the audience as well that's the beautiful thing where you're, you're just seeing people the sharp intake of breath and then the Yes, I can't believe this is Noel singing this song. I had no idea that Noel was so talented. <laughs> that would be one of uh, a, a big, uh, big dis disbelief. I would imagine that would be a, a fairly troublesome tide to turn. I reckon with my my vocal skills. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll do something of the. the we, we could, and I heard that Sting's a majority. We could do some police. We'll get yeah, you we up could there. do a bit of police. We've got uh, <laughs> Jimmy Nail, of course. Where, and Mark Knopfler. Mark Knopfler. Well, as my mate always tells me, I always bang the Mark Knopfler drum, right? 
because uh, it's interesting. He, Mark Noffer actually once uh, fell into a, uh, put his car in a ditch next to my uh, grandma's, grandma and grandpa's farm, and my mum helped him out. And he's got a bit of a Geordie accent, but I do bang the Mark Noffer drum. My mate always, always tells me he was born in Glasgow. So it's a, it's a bit of a tough one, but I'll stick to it. Dire Straits are Geordies in my mind. Yeah, great band, and I, I've learned quite a few of their songs over the years. And Knopfler's been a massive influence guitar-wise. Uh, I am a big yeah. Sam Fender fan. I don't know if you like Sam Fender or not. I went to yeah. see him. Is he a Geordie as well? He's then? a Geordie, yeah. He wears um. his Newcastle top on stage. I saw him. I like him that much. He was on in Sydney last week. I saw him on the Tuesday night and the Saturday night. So that's taken a while to get into that. And it's, it's, it's nice to get out and hear a bit of rock and roll, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is, uh, I think, music, you know, during the lockdowns, people... You know, you know. Obviously, we weren't getting together, and you know, but music is the is the been more. I think it's more appreciated now than it's ever been. Particularly live music, getting into rooms with people. And I was at Groove Armada in Sydney last week, and yeah, I was there just, too. Oh, were you? Great. Yeah. So you know, just to be in that room, and you know, in the Horton Pavilion, and the you know the lights, the sound, the sub bass, <laughs> the noise of the bass drum, the just the and then the roar of the the people. There's 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 nothing like it. It's it's uh, you know I still I still love being in the middle of a, a concert and obviously being on stage where you have this sort of relationship with the band on stage, but then the 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 vibe with the audience, this to and fro, and it's just there's nothing like it. Talking about going back to those kind of moments that you realise you're at a certain age. I'm thirty eight, almost thirty nine, and uh me and my fiance went to uh to see Groove Armada and I walked in and I kinda of made that I was like, Oh it's good today, it's good. A bit bit of an older crowd. My missus was like, We are the older crowd. We are the older <laughs> crowd now. Get used to it, pal. I'm like, oh yeah, these are our people. Yeah. Well, that was that was their 25th anniversary tour. So that yeah. tells you that tells you something. When Groover Mata have been around 25 years, we're definitely getting into that. We're, we're getting like our dad. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit, um, Kieran, I've really enjoyed every minute of this conversation and some awesome stories about music, but also uh, around hard work and persistence and and just going with it, right? Um, I would love to finish with uh, the question I ask everyone who comes on the show. Um, how does Kieran describe resilience? I think it's getting up on the days when you're struggling to get up and go and do the stuff, um, to find it in yourself, to find that little bit of uh, fight, and that little bit of fire that's always there. Sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes as days go, days and weeks go past where it's hard to find it. Um, but, you know, just getting up and trying to find that, that bit of fight in your day and bringing something to the day. Um, that, that has been a, has been a, a sort of a trait that I've, I've been able to develop over, over years. Um, um, and getting back up every day and doing it again and again. And, um, but it's also it, it shouldn't be it, it although sometimes it's tough and a lot of the times it's tough um i've always tried to find that get to that place of gratitude get to that place of uh joy um where i'm it's not a drag um and thankfully with my job you know i get instant gratification on stage or in the room with musicians um but 
that that would be resilience to me. Um, just keep keep on keeping on. <laughs> Great way to finish, Kieran Gribben. Thank you very much for joining the Building Resilience Podcast. It's been a pleasure to get to know you more. Where can the listeners hear more about you and and see what you're up to? There are two websites that they can go and take a look at. Um, both businesses are are uh, I co-founded. Uh, with a business partner. One is rockandrollteambuilding.com and the other is more about music therapy and it's called vibrateyourmind.com. Thank you very much. And I look forward to continuing the conversations another time. All the best. Cheers, Noel. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks very much to our guest today, Kieran Gribben. I appreciate your time. Thanks to our sponsor, Securo. Securo, trust tomorrow. You can find out more about myself or Securo at securo.io. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. Afternoon Sport. Are you thinking about making a podcast? If so, contact the Afternoon Sport Group. We'll make it easy. With the technical know-how and industry knowledge, we'll get your podcast up and running in no time. Get in touch via our website or email hello at afternoonsport.com.